friends and colleagues. Uh, it, uh, 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 it is Voices of the Sacred Feminine Day. Uh, I am your host, Karen Tate, uh, and uh, I want to invite you to awaken. Uh, we do have so many topics that we talk about here that um, uh, all, all uh, very comfortably and conveniently fit under the umbrella uh, of the sacred feminine uh, values and ideals, I believe. Um, uh, so I thank you if you're a, um, uh, you know, an, a long-time listener. I appreciate your listener loyalty, your gas in my tank. And if you're new to the show, uh, I invite you to look at the wonderful archives uh, there are available. Uh, we have some pretty incredible guests. Um, who share their insight and wisdom uh, every Wednesday or Thursday night. And um, I am so happy to have with me uh, another one of those folks. Um, uh, his name is uh, Will Johnson, and uh, he is the founder and program director of the Institute for Embodiment Training in Las uh, Delicias, I think, Costa Rica, what a, uh, an awesome name for a city. Um, he is a magna cum laude graduate of uh, Princeton University. He became a rolfer, and uh, he's brought the world a deep body work uh, in rolfing understanding uh, of effortless balancing into the meditational world. Uh, he's the author of many books about the role of the body in spiritual practice, as well as the ecstatic body practices of the 13th century Sufi mystic and uh, poet Rumi. Uh, his books include The Posture of Meditation, The Spiritual Practices of Rumi, Breathing Through the Whole Body, and Eyes Wide Open. Uh, he's developed a powerful body-oriented approach to Buddhist meditation called Hollow Bamboo Dharma practice that he's taught at retreat centers around the world. And currently he and his wife are receiving serious, experienced uh, meditators, no, mediators, uh, I think. Meditators? Mediators? Meditators. Yeah, me meditators. Uh, <laughs> meditators, thank you. Um, at their yeah. retreat center. Uh, where they enter into intensive self-retreat that Will monitors and guides. Uh, and I think their retreat uh, center is called Bamboo, uh, help me, Will. No, well, bamboo, Hueco is, yeah, bam bamboo Hueco is Spanish for hollow bamboo. That uh, hollow bamboo comes from a Mahamudra statement to become like a hollow bamboo when you awaken and open the body. Uh, you, you really open wide open. And uh, that's what we Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I had a friend who used to refer to um, uh, us, you know, to refer to us humans uh, saying we had to become like a hollow bone. Uh, yeah. And that, uh, that kind of re reminds me of this. Um, but, uh, yeah, Will, uh, Will is with me tonight. We're going to be talking about cannabis and spiritual practice. Uh, subtitled The Ecstasy of Shiva and the Poem of Buddha. Um, sacred hallucinogens is a favorite topic of mine. Uh, and I, I live vicariously through uh, some of my guests because I have yet to experience uh, some of the things that uh, uh, my guests speak about. Uh, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but I did want to tell listeners that uh, when the interview with Will uh, is over, I have uh, something I'd like to share with them, an interesting reading uh, from one of my listeners. Uh, it's called Powerful. 
uh, uh, particularly um, focused on empowerment of women. Um, and uh, but of course it can apply to either gender. Uh, but uh, I thought it was very inspirational, and I'll be sharing that with you. Uh, uh, you know, th those of you tuned in tonight. Uh, you know, at the end of the interview. So anyway, uh, let's uh, you know turn our attention back here uh, to Will Johnson, uh, his website uh, embodiment.net. Uh, just in case we forget to mention it later, embodiment. Uh, .net. So, um, Will, uh, you're uh, a Buddhist uh, teacher, um, uh, well, in the Buddhist world, and um, I, I thought mind-altering substances weren't particularly embraced, um, yet your books uh, talk about this, you know, the potential, the spiritual potential of cannabis. So how do you reconcile, um, you know, support of cannabis uh, and your role as a Buddhist teacher. Yeah, it's a good place to start. Uh, you know, I am a Buddhist teacher. I've been invited into the Buddhist world, although I'm a bit of an outlier, an outsider in the Buddhist world. What I mean by that is that I never was someone who formally affiliated myself with any particularly Buddhist lineage or Buddhist uh, tradition. I always focused on the denominator common to all the traditions, the Tibetan traditions, the Southeast Asian traditions, the Japanese traditions, which is the sitting posture uh, itself. Now, why does someone like me get invited into the Buddhist world? Uh, you know, simply because the Buddhism that's coming over from Asia, and we're extraordinarily fortunate to be receiving these teachings on the Western shores right now. Uh, ha having said that, somehow the Buddhism that uh, is coming over from Asia, uh, it it's painted itself into a corner of some frozen stillness. It's become rigid, uh, a patriarchal, almost militaristic in some ways. It has removed itself from the felt experience of the body, focusing solely on mind. And uh, you know, even you know what I call uh, my work embodiment. Um, you know, right away we're talking about the sacred feminine. One of the reasons I was particularly interested in doing this interview with you is that I like the name of your program because that is, you know, truly what uh, this Buddhist teaching needs to, in a sense, revive and reform itself as it comes over here to, uh, to our shores. Now, in the teaching that I do, specifically in the Buddhist world, mind-altering substances are prohibited, and I'm absolutely fine with that because that works in terms of the long uh, retreats that I teach. Having said that, I, again, am something of an anomaly or an outsider in the Buddhist world because I'm very open to uh, em embracing the power of substances like cannabis that have the ability to awaken the body. Again, my role as a Buddhist teacher whether you're using substances like cannabis or not, it's really to reawaken uh, you know, the body. And right again, here we are in the realm of the sacred feminine. Well, that makes, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, one of the reasons I've never gotten too interested in Buddhism, quite frankly, is for a couple of the reasons you mentioned, you know, the patriarchal aspects. Also, there seemed to be this thread that runs through it uh, about embracing sacrifice and suffering. 
um, you know, if unless I was misunderstanding, and I, I think, um, you know, that's sort of the perfect teaching if you want someone to endure, uh, or if you want to be a, an oppressor or a dominator, uh, or or somehow um, control. Um, you know another person, and it, it doesn't—it didn't seem to be something about sacred pleasure. Um, no. And um, and the other, you know, it, and and I think the sacred feminine is about the body. It's uh, life affirming. It's—I believe it's about sacred pleasure. It's—it's uh, it's about um, I think awakening our mind to uh, our right brain. Uh, and I think of. Um, uh, Buddhism as being very, you know, left brain, uh, but and I'm ta- I could be talking out my butt here, okay? You know, I'm I'm talking not from personal experience, but you know, my limited um, awareness uh, of Buddhism. Um, but um, it, but it feels like to me, sacred hallucinogens kind of would go hand in glove with uh, mindfulness, with meditation, with doing that inner journey work, um, I would think it would help us lift the veil um, to maybe more easily get to the other side, you know, um, if, if that makes any sense. To, um, do you disagree? No, I mean, everything you're saying makes, uh, you know, makes a great deal of sense to me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that, again, the traditional Buddhism that's coming over here, uh, it has, in a sense, gotten out of touch with, uh, you know, with bodily presence, with, uh, 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 you know, our, the cells of our body, they're like single cells uh, anywhere. They're, uh, they expand in the direction of nurturing, of pleasure. They retract. Uh, when there is perceived or real threat around. And I'm very, very clear that the, uh, well, the work that I'm attempting to do and what I'm attempting to do with the Buddhist world is in a sense to reform the practices, to reintroduce this notion that it is not about sitting for hours and hours and hours and hours in a day uh, at retreats getting crushed by the practices that, by and large, do not have a great deal of focus, but simply how to uh, how to sit in ways that support grace, support ease, support uh, energetic flow that moves through the body, support motion. Uh, you know, somehow the Buddhist Dharma teaches us sit for long, long hours at retreats as though the goal of the practice is to become like a stone garden statue of the Buddha. And that doesn't really get you very far. Now, you know, yes, the teachings, even uh, in the rigid form that they're taught, can be very wonderful. But in these long retreats, they can unfortunately either uh, liberate you or crush you. And too many people are just getting shut down and and crushed and imploded. I want to see that change. And once again, uh, you know, you and I will probably be saying this back and forth quite a bit during this interview. It is the notion of what I think both of us would probably agree on is the sacred feminine needs to be reintroduced to reform and resurrect. But the extraordinary beauty of uh, you know, the Buddhist teachings go back 2,500 years. 
Well, and, and it seems to me, you know, when you're describing, you know, sitting there for all of these hours, again, that, that to me, that strikes me of uh, suffering and sacrifice, you know. Uh, it kind of strikes me as, um, and again, you know, I might not understand the benefits of it fully, but it seems like it's a test of will and endurance. Um, and um, I don't know, that, that's not necessarily, I, I mean, that, uh, you know, that, that doesn't seem in alignment uh, to me with the sacred feminine. I mean, if you're going to somehow gather some sacred knowledge, some uh, Gnosticism or, or something from, from these, uh, you know, those sorts of um, practices, um, okay, maybe there's some benefit, but it almost seems sadistic or masochistic, depending on, uh, you know, whether you're the, you know, the teacher or the student. Um, is, is that going a little bit too far? Well, uh, not really. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. When I sit in front of a hall of Buddhist meditators, uh, you know, the first thing I notice, you know, people that are drawn to these practices are extremely good-hearted people. However, we've somehow gotten the idea that I was just saying before that you're supposed to sit so still as though you're, you know, to become like a stone garden statue of the Buddha. And that kind of frozen stillness impacts, uh, it implodes, it, uh, uh, it, you know, it creates tension in the body. It creates pain in the body. It actually stops breath. In its tracks, we'll be talking about breath, I know, in the hour that we're spending here together. And, you know, the breath is the vehicle through which the whole body can, uh, can awaken, can enliven. And then the other thing about that sitting so rigidly still is that it fuels the already out-of-control parade of random unbidden thoughts in the mind. Now, pain in the body, stopping breath in its tracks, uh, fueling thoughts in the mind, to me, are the antithesis what these teachings are, uh, you know, are designed to do. Now, in the practices or the orientation, the approach that I bring to the cushion, you're not sitting like a stone garden statue of the Buddha. I have people play with simple principles uh, of alignment, aligning the spine, because if you align the upright torso of the body, then you can relax. If your torso isn't aligned, you can't relax because you fall over. So first of all, there's an alignment of the spine that allows a great deal of relaxation to occur. And the most radical piece that I personally bring to the Buddhist conversation is my insistence that if relaxation is is to continue over time, we have to allow spontaneous, subtle, constant, amoeba-like motions to occur constantly throughout the entire body in resilient response to the breath. Now, that, in a sense, even though it's subtle, turns the uh, practice of sitting meditation into almost more of a spontaneous dance than a rigidly, uh, uh, you know, a rigid kind of sitting still and frozen. I mean, you know, think for a second. If you were to stand up and stand at attention, uh, and, and not move. But, you know, that's not going to be a particularly wonderful experience. But if you stand and suddenly the body starts swaying and the breath starts opening the body, and the next thing you know, the body is starting to move, that's a very, very different experience 
And those two extremes are what, well, the, you know, the first of those extremes is what I see has somehow infected or infested and filtrated uh, Buddhist centers, ashrams, retreat centers all over the world, uh, you know, almost as an epidemic of this frozen stillness. And what I want to do is to see that, in a sense, healed and for people to, you know, open to the living vitality of human beings. And that's where things get very alive and very fun. And that's where, you know, extraordinary transformation can occur that is, frankly, extremely pleasurable. Well, and, and, you know, you said some things, um, well, you were about to start talking about Rumi, and you said some things that I felt like uh, were probably in alignment with Rumi. I mean, I've been in Turkey, and I've been in the presence of the, uh, you know, the Sufi dancers, and, yes. you know, they're doing this twirling, you know, this twirling, moving meditation, and it almost seems um, ecstatic for them. You know, Um, and I could, yeah, and I mean, and I could see where once a person got that movement down, that um, that could be such a um, a different experience than, like you said, the Stone Garden Buddha uh, uh, posture, uh, because you know you're you're flowing, the energy is flowing, you're breathing, you're moving, um, it's life. You know, it's life where the other is almost a a slow death in a way. Um, And um, I I, I don't know. Am I starting to get it? (laughs) Well, you know, I think you already have it. Uh, You know, look, there is this notion. Let's just take the word ecstasy even. That ecstasy to me can be thought of as an ecstasis, coming out of a condition of frozen stillness. So, we think of things like the Mevlevi dervishes turning and turning and turning, and these extraordinary practitioners go into highly ecstatic states. That's what I want to bring to the sitting cushion, so that when you sit down, it's not a matter of uh, sitting without moving a, a single muscle fiber, but starting to surrender, yield to the most Uh, basic, fundamental, primal aspects of human existence, the breath, the heartbeat, the sensations of the body. We have these sensations, this shimmer, these tiny little pinprick blips of sensation that exist in every part of the body. But when we hold ourselves rigidly and still, when we're lost in thought, we essentially shut that down. So I want to resurrect the experience of the body. And when you do that, just as what happened with Rumi, uh, it's very uh, common that people naturally become dancers. I, w- I want to bring a dance consciousness onto the Buddhist cushion. And does the cannabis enable this? Is that sort of the point of of where of where we're going? Um, you know, with this idea of using uh, the cannabis in a spiritual practice, does it open us up? Uh, you know, do, does it help us drop those those walls of resistance? Um, I don't know if resistance is quite the word, but uh, awareness, um, so that we can go there a little bit more easily. 
Yeah, now, for, I mean, this is an interesting question. And for some people, yes, absolutely it can. For other people, no, it doesn't work uh, uh, anywhere nearly that well. Now, I don't, uh, you know, promote or insist that people use cannabis in conjunction with their spiritual practices. However, if you're someone for whom cannabis works, then I want to remove the stigma that if you do use it in conjunction with your practices, you're not violating some kind of spiritual uh, precept. You know, at every single retreat that I have taught over, oh, over the last uh, you know, decade or two, I've had people come up to me asking to speak with me privately, telling me that uh, you know they use cannabis and what's happened to them, they've been shamed or ostracized or made to feel somehow wrong doing that and I tell them look if this works for you then yes it's absolutely fine you can use it in the in uh, the context of your uh, practice now I do as a spiritual teacher I don't care what people do so long as you're not hurting anyone else or yourself okay so for some people using cannabis does not hurt anybody else does not hurt themselves for other people maybe using it it doesn't work for them for most people have to take responsibility for that and, uh, you know, and not use it. But I'm, I'm quick to point out to these people that the current uh, attitude of the spiritual world towards a substance like cannabis is not a whole heck of a lot different from the 1950s great world attitude towards gays. They were made wrong, ostracized, claimed, excluded. And, you know, it's, it's just time, as the, you know, the Buddhist Dharma is coming to Western shores for us to uh, re- you know, re-embrace, you know, we're gonna, we can reinvigorate these extraordinary teachings. And what's fascinating about that, Karen, this is only the third major migration of the Buddhist teachings in the whole 2,500-year history of, uh, of Buddhism. Originally, out of India, it went down into Southeast Asia, took a left turn up through China onto Japan. The second migration was up over the Himalayas onto the Tibetan Plateau, and now it's coming to the West. Now, each time the Dharma has migrated, the Buddhist teachings have migrated to a new territory, it doesn't just impose the old order on that new territory. It takes into account the psychological needs, the issues, the traditions of that new territory and incorporates them into the uh, body of the teaching without losing the fundamental essence, but actually embellishing and enhancing it. And I believe very strongly that what we're doing as Western Buddhists is in a sense, uh, oh, out of gratitude for these teachings, we return the favor by helping the Buddhist teachings get back in touch with their fundamental somatic, that means body-oriented, soma, their fundamental somatic uh, uh, essence. So it's, it's a beautiful exchange, and it's a time of very, very, uh, uh, you know, extraordinary interaction and exchange. Okay. Um, but I am curious about this um, this point that you were making uh, that uh, you know there are legends um, that we can find even today that speak about um, the Hindu god Shiva 
uh, using cannabis in his spiritual practice. Do you bring that up <clears throat> to help with this, uh, you know, to kind of um, fight the stigma that you say, um, you know, still exists in, you know, some parts of the world about using the cannabis in spiritual practice? Well, I certainly talk about it openly, and again, it really depends on, uh, uh, on who my audience is. If I'm invited into a very traditional Zen center or a Vajrayana center, and there, you know, their practices uh, prohibit the use of substances, I'm absolutely fine teaching without using uh, these kinds of substances because my approach is so body-oriented it's going to awaken the feeling presence of, uh, of the body. But for people who are open to using these substances, absolutely. I'm very open about talking about these kinds of histories. And the great Hindu god Shiva is the perfect example now. Uh, you know, this is one of the major uh, gods of the, uh, you know, the Hindu uh, pantheon. And the stories of Shiva and the legends uh, have filtered down to the present day that he was someone, he and his, uh, his wife, Parvati, they used cannabis. He would drink it in the form of a bond mixture. Now, this gets very interesting. What would happen to Shiva? He would ingest the, uh, the cannabis in the drink, and it was said that he would stand up, and suddenly he would feel energies awaken in his body, and his body started making spontaneous movements and out of those movements, he brought the body-oriented practices of yoga and dance to the planet. Now, this gets very fascinating. Uh, uh, you know, I talk to young people in their 20s and 30s who have had really ecstatic openings at raves, and I share this story about Shiva, and, the, and their response is, yeah, that sounds about right. And that's certainly what happened to me as well in... Uh, you know, in my 20s, as I started reawakening, uh, you know, my body, uh, cannabis was, was God's medicine for me at the time. I started using it in, uh, you know, in university. I suddenly understood what religion was all about, and it launched me on a path of really awakening not just mind, but, uh, you know, but body, uh, uh, you know, body as well. And, you know, to the degree that I kept doing this, things just kept happening. They just kept happening. They just kept, uh, kept happening. And, you know, for me, it was one day I was out in, uh, in a garden. And it was around the time that I had just started getting in touch, back in touch with my body. I started getting raw, which is a very deep form of, uh, of body work, extraordinary work, very profoundly reawakening. And for the first time in that afternoon, I was out in the garden. Uh, I had, you know, smoked some cannabis. And suddenly I felt my body coming into a condition of balance. And the next thing I knew, an arm was moving up above my head. I was clear that I was not doing that. The energy was moving me. And I just started letting go. And what I then came to call my dance just opened, and I really explored that uh, all my life on my own with my, uh, with my wife. We do a lot of movement, uh, uh, you know, together. And again, this is, in a sense, what I have attempted to bring into the Buddhist world. Whether you're someone who ascribes to the traditional Buddhist precepts not to use any mind-altering substances, 
or if you're someone who's been open to some of these sacred entheogens, something like cannabis or, or some of the uh, you know the more powerful uh, substances as well. The Buddhist Dharma is about exploring the depths of consciousness of human beings. So why wouldn't it be open to embracing uh, you know the, you know some of these experiences that can occur through some of these substances? Remember, I don't care what people do. I'm interested in what, how they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it. So when we use these substances, yes, I want them to be doing some of these extraordinary practices from the Shiva tradition, from Rumi's tradition. Uh, and, you know, we find that the mixture of something like cannabis, for me, I take it in very, very small amounts. And uh, movement practices, spontaneous movement practices, yoga practices, sitting practices, breathing practices, gazing practices, practices of touch with another person can be very, very powerfully enhanced and help you move into these ecstatic uh, states that to me are the birthright of human beings. So, um, Will, do you think it's really as simple as the cannabis just helps us um, lose the inhibition, you know, maybe lets the ego drop aside uh, so that we can, you know, have what you're calling these spontaneous movements that – you know, aren't natural uh, if we're, you know, maybe not doing some sort of practice like yoga or, uh, you know, meditation or or something like that? Well, yeah, actually the movements that start occurring spontaneously are completely natural. I would uh, suggest that what's happening is normal in the world is pretty unnatural because there's so much of a shroud that's been put on the body and we don't simply move. Now, the cannabis does not cause those movements to occur. What the cannabis can help support some people to allow it to happen is that it awakens the experience of the body, these minute billions and billions of pinprick uh, blips and shimmering sensations. And once we awaken the body in that way and start relaxing, then these movements can start occurring uh, very naturally and very spontaneously. So the, the cannabis, I don't think, uh, causes the movements to occur, but it can help support us in our work and play to reawaken body as a unified field of very, very shimmering uh, tactile uh, you know, sensation. And out of that, the movements start happening. Now, we live in a very disembodied world, where the consciousness that passes as normal is primarily lost in thought and out of touch with body. It's like a teeter top. When we're lost in our mind, we shut down on the feeling presence of the body. Well, when we reawaken body and, ah, the sensations start emerging to every single place in the body, the total reawakening of, uh, you know, bodily sensation, out of that movement occurs and mind starts shutting down. And and there again is the sacred feminine because the sacred Absolutely. feminine is is more the 
more the body uh, than, um, you know, being in touch with the body rather than being all in our head. And, you know, and, and I think patriarchal religion maybe uh, is to blame for us um, denying the body. You know, the body is about, you know, uh, it's taboo. It's about shame, uh, you know, uh, the horrible, you know, horrible sexuality and all of that. Um right. You know, I, I don't know. That, that's that's what comes to mind uh, as well when you talk about you know we're all kind of in our head and and sort of denying our body. There has unfortunately been uh, you know a movement in a in a sense in some of the well, frankly, all of the major religions to uh, promote some kind of. A disembodied belief, uh, 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 you know, faith, you know, things that you can't experience, and have told us to shut down on the body. That the body is some kind of hornet's nest. We're we're supposed to suppress it, repress it. And for me, nothing could be further from the truth. If we really want to awaken, to open, and to use the, the theistic terminology of traditional religion. To have a direct experience of God, we've got to wake up. We have to wake up the body we've been given, this God-given body. Use it, you know, awaken it, enjoy exactly. it. Exactly. And, yeah, and, the, and that yeah. then allows us to open into some of these extraordinary natural states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the denial of the pleasures of the body, you know, I think is, uh, uh, you know, was, it was a dirty trick. Um, you know, that uh, I think patriarchal religions who, uh, you know, came down the pipe played on humanity. Uh, but listen, let, we're going to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, you mentioned gazing. And I think uh, there's a gazing practice of Rumi uh, I'd like for you to speak to. And um, how does cannabis uh, tie into that and enhance uh, that practice. So that's where I want to go when we come back. Uh, but uh, we're going to take a minute here uh, because uh, I have a word uh, from Joe Carson. Uh, I have a clip featuring some of the women in Joe Carson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia, uh, that I'd like listeners to hear. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind. The mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected. They were together. That there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Hey, we were just talking about that. Uh, but anyway, uh, Dancing with Gaia is available only at uh, dancingwithgaia.com. 
so um, I am speaking uh, with uh, Will Johnson, and um, we are talking about uh, cannabis and uh, spiritual practice. And um, uh, Will, uh, tell me about this uh, gazing practice. And uh, was it started by Rumi? Uh, what is it? Uh, how does cannabis fit in? Um, fill us in. Yeah, well, you know, the gazing practice came into my life very spontaneously in my early 20s with uh, a fellow whom I met. He actually picked me up hitchhiking. We became extremely close friends. We were committed to exploring this question, what would authentic being actually be like? And we were both very, very aware that the consciousness of pastors is normal out in the world ain't all that authentic, and it had to have to do with some kind of, uh, you know, reawakening of body, of a meshing of body with consciousness, and one day, it just happened spontaneously, we were uh, sitting at opposite ends of the sofa, and, uh, it, you know, Phil and I definitely used, uh, you know, cannabis in our interactions, and we held each other's gaze for a moment, and then we both looked away. And then we looked back, and Phil said, whoa, what was that? What happened? They said, I don't know. It was strong, whatever it was. And he said, let's do that again. We did it for a moment. We looked at each other, held each other's gaze, looked away again very, very quickly. And he said, why do we look away? And I said, well, when I look at you, I guess I feel too much. And he, I bless this man to this day, he said, yeah, me too. What's wrong with that? We turned our gaze back to each other. We held each other's gaze for the next hour. Uh, After that hour, honestly, I never never felt that I've ever been quite the same because it is an extraordinarily powerful awakening practice, probably the most rapid and, you know, potent of all the practices that I've been fortunate enough to explore. Uh, And it, it, it couldn't be simpler. You simply sit with a friend, and you you look at each other. Sometimes the gaze naturally uh, focuses on the other person's left eye, and you simply relax. Now, the thing about this practice, it very strongly uh, accelerates, catalyzes your awareness of feeling presence, the exact thing that our disembodied consciousness tries to shut down. So when this comes up, the fore of feeling consciousness, you just sit with it and it starts changing. And uh, oh, things come up and you uh, uh, different sensations and then different visions. You start seeing things in almost in a hallucinatory way. There's colors and lights around your friend's, uh, uh, you, you know, your friend's face. They, they may disappear. You may see different uh, people now. Uh, when Phil and, Phil and I explored this in great depth, and over my lifetime, I've been fortunate to have had, uh, you know, to have had, you know, friends that I've been able to go deep with, and my wife, uh, Coco. Uh, this is how we met in an extraordinary uh, immersion into the gazing practice, and we knew immediately that there was something going on, and that she and I. Uh, were bonded in a very deep way and wanted to keep pursuing this. Now, Phil and I were convinced that we did, could not have discovered this. That this had to be a, uh, a just a basic, fundamental human experience. And I then began searching through the spiritual literature 
to find where this was uh, happening. Now, this was around the time when the poems of Rumi were just starting to come into English translation in the West, and someone gave me a small translation book. I think it was probably one of Robert Bly's first books, and I opened it randomly, and Karen, the first poem I opened to, there it was, it was the teasing practice, and I had known about Rumi's story that he had an extraordinary meeting with a wandering dervish named Sham. Something transpired between them. Now, later, a chronicler would say, or would record that Rumi had said that when his gaze met the gaze of Shamsi Tabrit, he, he felt his mind beginning to melt, and they went off together into retreat for something up to 90 days. And this was, and when they reemerged, he was in a state of ecstatic illumination. Now, this is what was happening with Phil and me. This is what happens with my wife and me when we, uh, you know, do these practices. Again, we're talking about the body. Rumi was very, very body-oriented. All of his practices, the dervish uh, uh, spinning, the turning, the gazing practices, deeply, deeply. Uh, embodied, deeply, deeply feminine, you know, use that in an archetypal sense, not so much uh, specifically in a, you know, a gender sense. We all have, you know, we all have the right brain as well as the left brain, as you were alluding to uh, earlier. So I, I then began a, uh, a study of Rumi's poetry. I had, <laughs> I, I had no idea how much there was. It was something like 23 uh, volumes of verses and what was interesting about Rumi is that he, he was something of uh, an ecstatic street, street rapper he started out a very uh, traditional Islamic cleric but through the opening of Sham he uh, you know something happened to him and he would wander around town with the musicians he couldn't stop moving dancing and the poems that we know as poems the extraordinary poems of Rumi never wrote a single word that was just spontaneously, uh, spontaneously uttered. And for me, the gazing practice is very, very central to who Rumi was and what had occurred with him. Now, there are some people that have suggested that Sham's family came from a Sufi sect called the, uh, called the Assassins. It's always kind of weirded me out. What, what was this? You had to have been a murderer or something? Well... Assassins is actually hashishan, and they were people who were open to using substances like hashish, which is, uh, you know, a form of cannabis, uh, you know, for their practices. Whether that's so or not, I I really don't know, but but I do know that the gazing practice, because it is such an extraordinarily physical, bodily practice, these are the practices, gazing, spontaneous movement. Hatha yoga, uh, all of these very powerfully bodily oriented, not mentally oriented practices, can, if you're someone for whom cannabis works, can be enhanced through the uh, through the use of uh, you know cannabis. And the gazing practice in particular is very very extraordinary. Um, I, I want to ask you a few things about Rumi, and uh, forgive me if this is kind of off the subject, but um, I, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, it seems to me he was he was uh, so divergent from the religion 
of his time, you know, Islam, unless I don't fully understand Islam, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Sharia and, you know, uh, all the different types of, uh, uh, of Islam there is there. How did he get away with it? You know, it, it just <laughs> yeah. seems like Good it question. was so, so different. And in the other part of it is, you know, and, the, and this isn't meant to disparage him at all, but do you think there was any chance he was gay? Yeah, okay, but, you know, both are very legitimate questions. And how he got away with it, it just so happened that he lived uh, at a time in a place that, what a concept, everybody got along. The Christians got along with the Jews, who got along with the Muslims, they all interacted. Rumi had uh, followers from the Jewish community who would say that when we listen to you, we understand the teachings of Moses. There were people from the Christian community who would say, when we listen to the words of your master, the words of Jesus come alive. So he was you know, able to, uh, you know, to share what had happened to him because he was living at a time and place that was, frankly, very, you know, extraordinarily liberal. Now, you know, it's true. Traditional uh, Islam, uh, you know, does not, uh, you know, embrace the notion of dance or you know, music or the kinds of things that, uh, you know, Rumi was doing, but he was uh, certainly, uh, luckily, living at a time where he, he got away with it. Now, look, having said that, when he came out of retreat, in this extraordinary state, and he then, uh, you know, started speaking to his followers and said, something has happened here between me and this extraordinary man, Cham, and I want you to all embrace this. Not everybody was exactly pleased with what had happened, because there are still a lot of people that did not like the fact that their sober, extraordinary Islamic cleric was now dancing ecstatically, had opened to this uh, uh, extraordinary illumination through an interaction with a very controversial uh, figure within the Islamic uh, world. Uh, Andrew Harvey, uh, you know, for me, is the, uh, is the chief spokesperson for the gay community, the spiritual gay community. Now, Andrew certainly believes that Rumi and Sean had to have been physical lovers as well as spiritual lovers. Uh, I, I simply don't know. Now it's interesting for me. I don't see that in the you know in the poetry. Without an understanding of the gazing practice, I think the only thing you can possibly conclude is that they had to have been uh, you know physical uh, lovers as well. If you have an understanding of the gazing practice, however, when you, uh, when Rumi talks about merging completely, becoming one in this, uh, you know, extraordinarily ecstatic uh, condition of union. Ah, from the perspective of the aging practice, you understand that because that's what, uh, you know, that's naturally what happens. You know, for me, it really doesn't right. matter whether they're physical, you know, lovers or, or not. And certainly within the Tantra world, uh, you know, the Tantra world that is a relational world, whether it's heterosexual, uh, man and woman, or, uh, you know, gay coupling, men and men, women and women, will often use a lot of uh, gazing as well to enhance 
and open, you know, the partners to the uh, the gesture, the act, the ritual of, uh, of sexual embrace. Uh, all of it is about a right. feminine. Right. Yeah, and and it matters not to me either. I just think it's curious that, um, you know, um, homosexuality would be such a uh, an abomination to uh, you know to Islam, uh, but yet you know the the beauty that came out of potentially. Um, you know, Rumi, if he was in fact gay, I mean, it would almost be, um, I, I don't know, it, I, I'm, I'm trying to find the words here. It would almost, you know, he, he would almost have been a living example that it wasn't an abomination or evil, if that makes any well, sense. It, yeah, um, well, whether they were, you know, and, whether they were and, and you yeah, know, and how was he not a heretic, too? You know, I, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to, to finish that. It, and it would seem like, you know, he, he could have gotten burned at the stake for being a heretic or something, you know. Other people did. Other people did who, in the wrong time and place, would make uh, the kinds of statements that Rumi would make, and they were not received, uh, uh, you know, received, you know, very well at all. You know, doing a reading of the entire divan, it's 44,000 spontaneously uttered verses. I was interested to see if there would be uh, verses talking about, you know, physical union uh, with Shams. You know, I just didn't find them. And Rumi was was married to try to keep Shams as a close friend in the town of Konya. Shams became very close to a young woman in Rumi's household, and the two of them were, were married. I don't know. It just doesn't matter. You know, once you open to these extraordinary uh, states, love exists. And if it's between a man and yeah, a man or a, and a woman or a woman and a woman, yeah. uh, it really doesn't matter at all. But this, of course, is heretical. To a lot of people right. and to a lot of uh, a lot of teachings, R- Rumi indeed was a uh, was a heretic. My uh, I, I I like the heretics. The heretics are the ones who are brave enough to trust their experience and not attempt to mold themselves like cookie dough into a cookie cutter of uh, you know beliefs that can't be uh, that can't be confirmed. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You know, in my tombstone, I wanted to say she did not conform. <laughs> yeah, doing it. Um, well, yeah, I, I, and, you know, when you think about this gazing thing, too, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to kind of, you know, unpack things. Uh, and, again, you know, obviously, you know, you've gotten the, the idea that, you know, I, I don't uh, appreciate a whole lot in, in the patriarchal religions. But, you know, it, it feels like to me, you know, looking at somebody eye to eye, um, you know, we're not taught to do that, really, you know, especially Women, well, we're at, you know, I yeah, think we're, we're, we're actually, I'm sorry, we're actually taught not to do that, but that is taboo. But then I would also say that ecstatic states are taboo in our culture, too. We don't see them. Yes, exactly. And that's what I was, that's what I, I was going to connect those dots, because it's like anything 
that will open you up to enlightenment or greater awareness where you are, you have that direct connection with the divine, well, then that sort of makes these religion, religions and these clergy people irrelevant and obsolete, doesn't it? Um, I mean, they well, don't really is. want us to have that growth, I don't think. Well, it's actually bizarre, but if you, you, know, if you look at some of the very restricted, uh, very rigid teachings of some of the religions, you almost think that what they're designed to do is prohibit people from having a direct experience of this great wide opening, or if you use theistic language, of an ecstatic union with God. And of course, that's, you know, that's completely... Uh, that's completely crazy. Uh, you know, you know we, we need, you know, look, even a, pr- a program that you're hosting right now, uh, with all the different guests that you're bringing on here, you're doing a really important service. People need to hear this. That it's time to awaken. It's time to actually uh, bring the life back, not only into the rigid spiritual teachings, but into the, you know, the religious teachings. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the religious teachings that bring the life back into us. Well, and, and I think, too, you know, I hope my show uh, helps liberate people, you know, because I really see a lot of these um, rigid uh, religions as shackles that really holds people back from their own growth and awareness and evolution and enlightenment, quite frankly. You know, I mean, I think it wants to pigeonhole them in little boxes where they can't think for themselves, they can't have experiences, they just have to sort of be these sheeple. And um, I don't know, I don't think that's what we were put here to do. You know, I, I, again, I couldn't agree with you more. There was an old statement. I don't know what its source is, but I always liked it. Someone once said, I do not seek to walk in the footsteps of the ancients. I seek what they sought. In other words, I'm not going to try to mold myself into the cookie cutter of these uh, impositions, these uh, statements, do it this way, do not do that, you have to do it like this, we just want to open to this extraordinary, uh, I, I, I use the word divine, but I really mean ultimately human life that's available to us to experience and to explore and to uh, blossom and, uh, and, and to truly get enlightened. I mean, enlightenment uh, is not something that occurs only in a very disciplined, rigid mind. It happens as an ecstatic explosion through the entire body. Yeah. I mean, and I think in a way that should be part of our goal for enlightenment and ecstasy, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, I don't know, that, that should have been two of the commandments. Thou shalt seek ecstasy and enlightenment. <laughs> right, right. Um, so... So, Will, um, tell me about one sound. Um, we're, we're starting to get a little short on time here, and I want to know about that. And, uh, and, if, and, if, um, you know, and if it's not too terribly involved, um, the difference between the five precepts of embodied spirituality versus the five precepts of Buddhism. 
Okay, I'll try to go through that a little bit, uh, you know, rapidly because I know we are getting a little bit short of time. The one sound, I've been a musician all my life, and in my early 20s, I lived and studied with a North Indian Zena teacher. It's a very old, sacred instrument. And the sound in the old, old days in India wasn't about performing. It was about immersing yourself in these extraordinary notes and sounds to open the energy centers of the, uh, of the body. So simply opening your mouth, oh, you know, really just opening, letting sound come through is another extraordinary way of opening the body, awakening the sacred feminine, uh, uh, it, it, you know, inside, singing uh, uh, ecstatic uh, chants, just working with the traditional Indian scales and uh, something like a tambura, the drone instrument. Just an extraordinary practice to do, again, to awaken the body. Now, the precepts that you're talking about, there were five traditional precepts in the, uh, in the Buddhist world. And all of them are, you know, spoken of in uh, a very, very negative, uh, you know, language. They say, don't do this and don't do that. Refrain from harming living things. Refrain from taking what's not given. Refrain from sexual misconduct. Refrain from lying. Refrain from taking intoxicants. And that one we'll talk about in a second. And it's all in negative language. Don't do this, don't do that. Well, in some ways... I want people, as I've said, I want people to take responsibility for themselves and their own spiritual evolution. Again, I don't care what people do. Uh, I want them to be, you know, acting responsibly. I'm interested in how they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it. So I thought, how about translating, retranslating those into language that would be uh, that would be positive, that would be about doing things instead of. Don't harm living things. Honor life. Honor the life force. Honor this uh, extraordinary alive uh, uh, current of the life force inside of us. Instead of, um, you know, don't, uh, uh, don't take anything. Be generous. Give of this force. When you awaken the current of the life force, it, it wants to expand forever and ever and ever. And it touches people. It touches the animals in a beautiful cliff that you played uh, during the break. It awakens. We're all part of this extraordinary web of life that we can, that we can feel. Instead of, uh, uh, you know, no sexual misconduct, sometimes that goes to an extreme of being completely celibate. Well, if you're someone for whom celibacy is natural, that's what you're to do. But for many of us, that isn't. I want people to be clean in your sexuality. Honor your partner as the god or goddess he or she is. And, uh, you know, embrace that, open to that. You know, the sexual awakenings that happen for young people, that's the first really big one that happens that we've all got to figure out what these energies are. And to impose, a, you know, a celibacy to a young novitiate uh, before they have to deal with those energies, I think that person is sexual misconduct. When they say uh, never, uh, never lie, of course, we, we don't want to do that, but let's couch that in a positive way. Mean what you say. Say what you mean. Always speak the truth. And finally, we get down to this uh, last precept, and this is where the precepts of Buddha and Shiva will differ. Will differ. Uh, for Buddhists, don't take any mind-altering substances. Well, for a follower of Shiva, 
who awaken to his experiences through the use of cannabis, if you don't take cannabis, that would probably be violating the precept of your practice. For me, it's put into your body only what feeds and nourishes your body and soul, and you are the only person who knows what, you know, what, what works for you and what doesn't. As I was saying earlier, cannabis works extraordinarily well for some people. It doesn't work for others. If you're someone who it doesn't work for, don't use it and don't feel like you're missing anything. If you're someone for whom it does work for, explore it in the content or use it while you're exploring these practices. And uh, in that way, you're following this this final fifth precept and and honoring that. So it's just a bit of a different slant that, that frankly embraces the body rather than denies it. And and I think it's a very important slant too, because I mean, just the I mean, I could feel the difference in the energy between all of these refrain from this, refrain from that. It felt so constricted, restrictive. Um, but yet, when you would say these other things about you know honoring your partner and all, of, you know, I can't remember all of them now. But it it um, uh, you know it, it was just a totally different energetic. And I thought to myself, I want to live in that world. Yeah, me, <laughs> you know, me, the world that that, that that yeah, you know, the world that speaks like that. Um, and I don't know. I just think it would make a huge difference in the quality of our lives, how we see each other, how we treat each other. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I think, I, I think that, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a really important thing. Well, thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're really, you're really welcome. Um, well, Will, um, we're about uh, at the end now, and uh, I really have enjoyed uh, this talk uh, tremendously. And Um, so the chance, uh, you know, of, of getting into one of your classes there is probably not real, um, you know, real, uh, you know, probable. But uh, do you uh, do you travel around the country? Do you uh, do online classes? I mean, if somebody wanted to connect with you and find out uh, what you're offering that they might want to. Uh, partake of what's uh, do they just go to your embodiment.net website yes that's how people can uh, you know connect with me and my wife now it's it's interesting uh, Kara and I've done a lot of traveling over the years my wife and I have moved down to Costa Rica why Costa Rica it's big nature and so much of what we're talking about is opening your felt nature the sacred feminine is about awakening your felt nature. So we wanted to live down here in an environment that would support our practices. Right now we're having students come down and work with us, uh, you know, individually. And, and yes, I have on my website, embodiment.net, under audios, I have a series of uh, three evenings, uh, three audios about the sitting practice, how to, in a sense, transform your sitting practice from the stone garden statue of the Buddha into an awakened, uh, you know, ecstatic life. Sitting on your cushion need not be horrifically uncomfortable. And that's what I want to bring back uh, into the Buddhist world. And, uh, you know, over the, uh, you know, the next year, I'll be doing quite a bit more online uh, teaching. It only makes sense now. We have the technology. We'll be putting together 
uh, a, a, a video series, and we'll also probably be doing some Zoom uh, online uh, retreats for people all over the world. I have uh, people on my email newsletter list, uh, literally from all over the world, and people have been talking about that. How can we do a retreat when, you know, it's perhaps unlikely that we, not everybody is going to come travel down to Costa Rica, but it's very nice here. Uh, and, you know, many people are starting to come and work with us. Okay. Well, I hope you'll add my email to your email list. I would love to know when you, uh, you know, start to do more of these things. Um, you know, Will, it's been great chatting with you tonight. Uh, you've, uh, um, I don't know, I, I feel like you've uh, opened my mind up to a lot of different ideas, uh, and uh, I, I thank you. Um, and, and I know you have a, a number of books out. Um, I mentioned them at the start of the show. Um, which of these books would you recommend to someone who maybe wants to explore a little deeper uh, some of what we spoke about tonight? Well, uh, Breathing Through the Whole Body, that's actually the, that phrase. It's the title of a book. It's the culminating practice on breathing that the Buddha talks about. The very few Buddhist practices go anywhere near that. It's all about rigid focusing. And breathing through the whole body is, frankly, an ecstatic whole body practice. So that would be certainly one. If people were interested in the practices of Rumi, uh, a good place to start would be Rumi's Four Essential Practices. He speaks of eating lightly, about breathing very deeply, moving very freely, and then, of course, the gazing practice. Those might be two that would be good places for folks to start. Okay. Sounds good. All right, then, Will. We'll, uh, the best to you uh, and your wife, Coco. Um, I will uh, think about you uh, in, in your uh, comfortable meditative pose in beautiful Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karen. I've enjoyed All right. being with you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Well, I hope you've all uh, enjoyed that. I know I certainly did. And uh, as I promised uh, at the top of the show, I wanted to share uh, with listeners um, this uh, short um, little essay that uh, one of my listeners sent. And um, it just struck me as so powerful uh, at the time. And, in fact, uh, I believe that's the title. And I'm sorry to say I, I don't have the author of this to give them credit. Um, please let me just say that I, I certainly would if I could. Uh, but I didn't want to not share this uh, because I didn't have the person to credit it to. Anyway, it goes like this, and please realize that this uh, could apply to a man just as well as a woman, although this is written, um, you know, as if they were speaking directly to um, the female gender. All right, it goes like this. Every woman has a past. Some were physically abused. Some had violent parents. Some had uh, pubertal issues. Some had sexual abuse as a child from their own family members. Some had messed up love stories. Some had been forced into sex in the name of love. Some had been drugged. Some were date raped. Some had been viciously photographed on beds. Some had been blackmailed by their ex-boyfriend. 
some were in an abusive relationship, some had menstrual problems, some had broken families, some had divorces, some had an obesity issue, some had financial droughts, some had drug or alcohol addiction, some had a few unsuccessful suicide attempts. If you see a woman who went through any of these but had already wiped her tears, tied her hair up, masked her sorrows with a divine smile, stood tall and strong, started walking toward her future because she still has some hope left inside her and has not given up on the concept of love that still exists in this world, do not stab her with her past. Do not confront her. Do not slap her with more abuse. Give way for her and walk beside her. Maybe hold her hands and walk for a while. You'll know how sweet that soul is and how strong her hopes are. You'll be amazed at how she carries herself after all her energy has been sucked out. She need not always be only the woman next door from a different home. She could be your own friend, your own sister, your own girlfriend, your own wife, even may be your own mother. Do not judge her by her past. Give her the peaceful future that she deserves. Hold her hands against the world, which knows only to judge. Give her the love that she always yearned for. Thank you, listener, for sending me that. Okay, uh, that about does it uh, for me uh, tonight. Uh, I will be back with you uh, next Wednesday and the following Wednesday. Uh, Please remember to go to the show page and click the follow button. That way you will get a notice in your inbox uh, once a week that will tell you the guest and a synopsis of our topic that we're going to be chatting about that night uh, with a convenient link that you can just click on and you will go right to the show. That way you don't have to remember to... um, uh, you know, to sign on to the show, uh, it'll be right there and makes it easy for you. And again, um, if this show has been um, a spring that feeds you, um, I would ask that you consider, uh, you know, making uh, a donation. You can go to my net website. And toward the bottom, uh, you will see uh, a PayPal button, which will enable you to make a donation of any amount. Uh, Now that I am retired, I don't have the discretionary income I once did, and it is more important than ever um, to keep the show on the air. Uh, I do have to pay for it. Uh, The guests do not pay to come on the show. Um, I pay to, um, you know, to keep the show going. And uh, your support uh, is uh, graciously and gratefully uh, appreciated. All right. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, I hope you're managing to stay cool and, uh, you know, you're having a good summer. I think there's only 40 days left until fall. Uh, This year has certainly just uh, marched on by uh, faster than I can imagine. Uh, It was, I think, eight months ago I moved up here to the mountain and, uh, Wow, it doesn't feel like eight months. Um, and Oh, also, too, uh, I have uh, my newsletter, Dancing at the Edges, with uh, Karen Tate. It usually goes out every month. Uh, this month it was about um, 
uh, honoring uh, SECMET, uh, whose month uh, August is, uh, you know, it is, it is a sacred month of SECMET. Uh, many of her devotees in ancient Egypt would uh, partake of spirits uh, on the porch of drunkenness in hopes that uh, in their inebriated state they would have a vision of her or some, um, you know, or she would speak to them. I also, uh, in, in the, this month's newsletter, also talked about, uh, you know, ancient wisdom. Have we been denied ancient wisdom? And... Um, last newsletter, uh, a lot of it was about ISIS because July uh, is, uh, is ISIS's birthday. So uh, my point in mentioning Dancing at the Edges with Karen Tate is if you would like to um, get a copy of the newsletter, you can usually find it on my Facebook page. Uh, uh, in, in the Facebook page of Karen Tate. Uh, sometimes I remember to post it on the Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, radio Facebook page. Uh, but you will certainly get it if you email me and send, you, and, and send me your email address and ask me uh, to add you to the newsletter list. And you can always reach me at KarenTate108 at Yahoo.com. That's KarenTate108 at Yahoo.com. And my website, again, is KarenTate.net. Uh, thank you, listeners. I, I am so glad to have you as the gas in my tank, keeping me going all these years. And um, I, I wish you a wonderful weekend and uh, a great summer. Okay. Good night.